Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ruth, verses 1 to 18 from chapter 1. The book of Ruth, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the churches ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons was Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Opah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly better to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Opa kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people in your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. The word of our Lord. Good morning. It's great to be here and to have this privilege. Uh, First off, I want to 
thank the worship team for your song selection. I didn't have any requests, but they are providentially perfect. And you gave my wife her favorite hymn, and you gave me my favorite hymn. As always, what a blessing. <clears throat> I want to apologize for um, my voice if it falters a little bit. I've had the plague for about five weeks, coughing my brains out. I'm loaded up with cold medicine this morning, so if I fall asleep, just nudge me <clears throat> to wake me up. I notice that I've given it to Daniel. You, no thanks necessary. Um, so I apologize for the voice this morning. Um, this morning I'm going to, care, uh, going to focus our meditation on the main character of this little book, this book of Ruth. Hopefully you've had the opportunity to read through it a couple of times. It's only four chapters. So hopefully you've been able to do that to familiarize yourself with it. In, in two weeks' time, uh, we will pass from Naomi and focus in on Ruth and Boaz, the other main characters of this little book. <clears throat> I wanted to say that I've been planning this sermon uh, since last summer. Uh, last summer, I went to see a friend to get counsel, which is a good thing to do periodically in all of our lives. And the friend gave me a couple of passages from this book. And they were used greatly in my life. And so I felt I would be wrong not to share with you some of the highlights that came to me uh, from the counsel uh, that I received. I hope... Uh, that you will be able to identify with these characters, especially this morning, <clears throat> to identify perhaps with Naomi, who's, I will start right out by saying she's not a wonderful example uh, for us to follow, but one that we can certainly identify with. The primary benefit of wisdom that God gives to his children is that you can learn by watching others struggle. If you lack wisdom, you will have to go through it yourself. I would advise the former and not the latter. You don't have to go through all these hard times to learn. You can learn by looking at others, and hopefully we'll be able to see that. <clears throat> May the Lord help us this morning to learn without uh, the painful result of following a similar path that Naomi followed. <clears throat> a week or so ago, Reed shared that he has plans to preach through this book uh, sometime in the new year, 2019. But I have no concerns of redundancy, uh, as my intent is more of a character study and to help us see the amazing faithfulness of our great God to his people. So having said that, <clears throat> I'm going to pray. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning. Lord, you know that I am physically tired and have uh, difficult speaking. I pray that you would give me the right words to speak uh, to the hearts and minds of all my brothers and my sisters this morning. 
Bless us all, Lord, with a sense of your presence. May your Holy Spirit take the stammering words and apply them to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the book of Ruth is sometimes known as a book of consequences, and, and you'll see that as you read through it. Hopefully, you've recognized it already, uh, that there are consequences to the decisions that we make. <clears throat> I found this book a great comfort, as I've said. Even though thousands of years old, yet I found it to be extremely relevant uh, to my life, and hopefully I'll be able to communicate that uh, to you. I have become more retrospect in my old age. Some of you are so young that you have no time to look in the rearview mirror. When you get older, you spend too much time looking in the rearview mirror, and you become retrospect, and you be, be, begin to question some of the decisions that you've made. Uh, good decisions, bad decisions, whatever. Uh, I seem to take some sadistic pleasure and ruminating on all the bad decisions that I've made or unwise decisions that I've made. And I don't know about you, but I love to play the what-if game. You ever play the what-if game? What if I did this? What if I said that? What if I didn't do this? It's to no avail. Some minor, some major decisions that I live to regret. <clears throat> this little book illustrates how God is faithful to straighten our crooked paths. God is wonderfully faithful. In Proverbs 3, 6, he says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. If you look at your history and you contemplate it, you may see that you followed a crooked path. God can make it straight. I'm here to tell you today that we have an amazing God who can use even sinful or at best unwise decisions to ultimately bless us as his children. I am comforted by God's love, mercy, patience, and his amazing sovereignty. And there's a theme that's repeated in the book of Ruth and here's a word for today. It's called hesed, H-E-S-E-D, hesed, which is God's covenant faithfulness to his people. I am here to tell you I'm a living testimony of God's covenant hesed, his faithfulness to me. Let me make a bold statement at the onset of this sermon. <clears throat> there is nothing that we or anyone can do that will keep God from blessing his children. Almost sounds antinomian, doesn't it? Almost sounds like I'm lawless. But there's nothing that you can do, or anyone can do, that will keep God from blessing his children. His hesed, his covenant faithfulness. I'll start out with giving you my thesis uh, for this morning. Again, for God's children. While there are consequences to all that we do in this life, the choices or the decisions we make will not be the ultimate basis for our final destiny. Did you get that? If you're God's child, 
whatever decisions you make, whatever roads you choose, in retrospect, you may evaluate them as bad decisions, even sinful decisions, will not be the ultimate basis for our final destiny. Grace directs the outcome of our decisions and God's kind providence, Hesed, guides us in his love for our good. Remember the text in Romans eight twenty-eight to 30. It's a passage that we should live by. I know I do, in retrospect of all the things that I've gone through. Know that God will fix it. If we submit ourselves to him, God will straighten out the crooked paths. That's a guarantee if you're his. Now, as typical, I want to do a 5,000-foot flyover, this book. To place this little book in the historical context of the book of Ruth, we've got to understand that the overall setting of this time is the time of the judges in Israel. The judges. And these were not good times. If you've read through the scriptures recently and you've come through the book of Judges, you recognize that there was a terrible pattern that occurred over and over and over again in Israel. Israel would be going along okay, then they would sin grievously. They would fall away from God, God would withhold his blessings. Um, they would eventually repent, and then God would restore the nation of Israel. But you see this cycle occurring over and over and over, and God sending a deliverer in each case uh, to deliver the nation from their wickedness and their awful decisions. But in each cycle, you'll notice, as you read the book of Judges, a gradual decline So that when you look at the last of the judges, Samson, uh, he himself was a terrible example for the nation. Terrible example. Made terrible decisions. Participated in wickedness on a regular basis. If you look at the chapters of Judges 17 to 21, you can see in graphic detail, and I'm not going to obviously go through there now, but I would reference you to that passage, uh, those chapters, and we see how the nation had truly lost its way. God's judgment falls upon Israel in these dark days, just as Moses had said uh, that it would in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verses 15 uh, to 68. And again, if you're taking notes, write that down because you can, you can see that Moses predicted if you fall away, if you disobey the word of God, this is what's going to happen. And that's precisely uh, what happened uh, to the nation of Israel. And in Judges 21, verse 25, uh, there's an oft-repeated phrase that's used. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now remember that, because that's repeated in the book of Judges. And Judges is sort of a macro perspective on the nation of Israel, but Ruth is a micro perspective on three of the individuals in that nation. So we go from macro in Judges to micro in the book of Ruth. 
As Chan read Ruth 1.1, we read that there was a famine in the land. Now it's important that we recognize in the Old Covenant, <clears throat> in the national history of Israel, famine was typically a consequence of unfaithfulness. When people were unfaithful, either from a micro or a macro perspective, God would all awesome uh, uh, sometimes curse the nation. Again, if you're writing notes, Leviticus. Now, see, as we just had this leadership class, this is why I think a plan is good to read through the scriptures. Because how often would you turn to Leviticus? Uh, What I want to show you in Leviticus, chapter 26, I want to read just a couple of verses here in chapter 26. The positive side of obedience in chapter 26 of Leviticus, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your, I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. But the negative side of this promise of God, we can see in verses 18 to 20 of the same chapter in Leviticus. And in spite of this, you will not listen to me. Then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins and I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain and your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit so in this time in the time of the judges In the land of Israel, when God was dealing with the specific nation of Israel, the fruit of disobedience was a hard life. Sometimes when we look at our lives, we need to consider if everything is hard all the time and we sense no blessing. I'm not saying we're living in the old covenant because we're not. And God deals with us individually. But God blesses those of us that seek his face. And we can learn from what we see in Leviticus. Isn't it interesting that the characters in our story of Ruth, back to Ruth, they live in the town of Bethlehem of Judah. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Okay? So here's the scenario. Elimelech, Ruth, and their two sons leave the house of bread and head to Moab. By the way, Elimelech name means God is king. But he followed the mindset of the nation at that time and he demonstrated that he assumed he was king and that he chose to do what he thought was right in his own eyes. Again, that's a repeated refrain refrain that we see in the book of Judges. 
So not recognizing that God who provided for the nation in the wilderness, not providing because of its collective sin. The same God who provided manna every day for the nation is the God who in the time of the judges was withholding bread in the land of bread, which is fascinating all by itself. Not recognizing Elimelech took God out of the decision-making process. I confess, I've done that from time to time. We did, I did, what was right in my own eyes. Now, sure, set some time apart to pray. Ask friends. But oftentimes, ultimately, the die was cast because of my own perceived wisdom. I was doing what was right in my own eyes. <clears throat> so Elimelech and his wife leave the house of bread, go to Moab uh, to find what they think they need. Sounds simple. It sounds right. There's a famine in the land. Why not go to Moab? Well, let me lower the airplane to about 1,000 feet and zoom in in the book of Ruth. I believe, as I've already said, that Naomi is the main character here, in spite of the fact that the book is named Ruth. Ruth is a character that you want to follow, and in two weeks' time, I hope to have a more positive message about Ruth and Boaz and how they sought the Lord at great cost. But Naomi, I believe, is the main character, and it starts, as I said, in Ruth 1.1, there was a famine in the land. And the family headed by Elimelech and his wife had two sons. The man decides to take action and in his own wisdom decides to leave the promised land, the house of bread, and heads off to a place called Moab. Now, just to put the Old Testament into the New Covenant, this isn't like us going to Cleveland for a job, okay? The land is the promised place. The land is the place where God delivered his people to, and yet they choose to leave the land of promise and go to a place like Moab. Moab is not a place where one could anticipate the blessings of God. Let me just say that. If you know anything about Moab, the history of Moab is the nation is formed from the illegitimate relationship between Lot and his two children. His two daughters. That's the founding of the nation of Moab. This nation is the very definition of wickedness. Remember later in the scriptures you read in Numbers chapter 22 that the king, Balak, hired Balaam to curse the nation as they went through Moab. Do you remember that? That's a fascinating passage. We're not going to go there today. It would take too much time. But that's, that's Moab. That's the history of, of Moab. And in Numbers 25, it, 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 it commanded the men of Israel to have nothing to do with the women of Moab because they would seduce the men of Israel to worship false gods. Moab was under the authority of false gods 
God. So Elimelech and his wife Naomi decide to take matters into their own hands. And instead of trusting God to provide, as he always did ultimately in the land of Israel. Remember I said that in Judges there was this cycle. Well, ultimately there would be repentance and crying out for help. God would send a deliverer and he would deliver the nation from their starvation. But it's interesting also that if you look at your Bibles, if you have your Bibles open... And you look at your Bibles in verse 1, it says that they originally went to sojourn. Well, sojourn is like what you do when you go someplace temporarily. It's, it's like, I'm hungry, there's no food in the land, so let's go to Moab. We hear that there's food in the fields. Let's go there to sojourn temporarily. But then what's interesting is in verse 2 it says uh, that they ended up remaining there. So they went to sojourn, but they end up being comfortable there. They kind of like their surroundings there. They kind of like the people there, and they decide uh, to remain there. Now there's a picture here. Sometimes in life, we convince ourselves in our own wisdom to dabble with sin. We're, just, we're not going to stay there. We're just going to dabble. But we end up staying there. And we find ourselves under the dominion of sin. And that's the picture that we have, that we have to take from this book. Is Elimelech and Naomi and their two sins, they went there as a temporary, but they ended up getting comfortable and living there. And further downward in the cycle, after the Lord takes Elimelech and Naomi is left by herself, she approves of her sons to do what? Marry two women from Moab. Specifically, God said, don't have anything to do with the women of Moab. Why? Because you'll end up worshiping their gods. So what we have here is Naomi approving of uh, her two sons, taking Moabite women, uh, and completes the cycle of rebellion. What we have here is a lobster or a frog in a pot of boiling water. If you bring the water up slowly, you're not aware of the fact that you're about to die. And that's what happened. They went there to sojourn. They went there temporarily. They end up living there. They get comfortable there. And as the water temperature goes up, they're not even aware of it. And with very little detail in verse 4 of chapter 1, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And both Malan and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Ten years, and there she is, left to fend for herself. The water has gotten hot. Now, again, this little book is about choices that we make and their consequences. If you 
I would suggest that you don't spend the entire, your entire life and energy focusing on the bad things that you've done and the bad choices that you've made. But there are times where retrospect is good. And to think back about the things that you've done that may have been unwise. And as we read this little story, we will observe Naomi making one bad decision after another. She just follows into this bad pattern that she's established for herself with making bad decisions. And what's also an interesting parallel to this kind of a situation, and if you've ever been in the sloth of despond, or you've ever been in a backslidden condition, you know what's interesting is when you make these horrible decisions without reference to God or what God would have you to do, the fruit of these bad decisions is oftentimes where you end up blaming who? Me or God? Well, let me just tell you that Naomi ends up, as she becomes increasingly hardened, blaming God for her misery. Not that you've ever done that, right? I have. Lord, how did I get here? Verse 13 in chapter 1. Would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You see, this was her attitude at this point. She was in a mess. I guarantee you that the welfare system in Moab wasn't all that wonderful. She had no means of support. She had nothing going for her. Ultimately, in Moab, she'd still be referred to as a Jewess. And there she is, in misery, and blaming God for her misery. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, what you see a little bit further here to validate this point in verse 20, is eventually she ends up back in Israel. She ends up back in Bethlehem where people recognize her. And they say, is this Naomi? And what's her response? Look at, at that. Look at verse, at verse 20. Ultimately, she, they recognize her and they say, is this Naomi? In verse 20, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Now, why would she say that? Because she said, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity on me. Well, You, if you knew your Old Testament history, you'd know about Mara. Mara was a place when Moses was leading the nation through the wilderness, and they had no water. They came to a place called Mara, and there was water there, and they went to drink it, but it was bitter. And you remember the passage 
the Lord directed Moses, take a log, throw it into the water, and the water became sweet. But the point is, she went from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Mara, which means bitter. Bitter. So obviously at this point she repents and turns back to God, right? Have you read, Ruth? (laughs) She didn't. She didn't. She didn't. Now, she's heard that there's food in Bethlehem, and she decides like the prodigal daughter, and that's exactly what we have here, is with Naomi, she's the prodigal daughter. She's going to humble herself. She's going to lower her head. She knows she's going to receive rebuke when she shows up in Bethlehem, and people wagging their fingers and saying, see, I could have told you if you left the land of promise for the land of Moab. So she lowers her head. She girds up her loins. And she starts to head back to the promised land. And then she gives what appears to be a blessing to Orpah and to Ruth. But she encourages them to go back to their families. Look at verse 8 and 9. To go back to their mother's household and to their gods. She even uses the Lord's name as a blessing for her daughters-in-law in verses 8 and verse 9. And what we see with Naomi is she's giving, constantly giving bad counsel. Constantly giving wicked counsel. Think about this for a minute. She's, she's telling her daughter-in-laws to go back to false gods. Why would you do that? Because you said it doesn't matter. As long as you have your God and I have my God and you have your truth and I have my truth, it's okay. Go back to your false gods. And she gives a sort of blessing to that effect. And she's basically condemning them for eternity. Instead of going to the one true God of Israel, she's sending her daughter-in-laws back to the worship of false gods, ultimately to end in their destruction. And I wondered, as I meditated upon this passage, if the reason she did this is because she knows that it would add to her misery to bring two Moabite women back into Bethlehem that she condoned their, her sons to marry in direct disobedience to the Lord God. So here she's going to bring these Moabite women. And let me just say that the nation of Israel had a proper perspective on the land of Moab. So I think it's not a huge leap to say that perhaps one of the reasons she didn't want her daughters-in-law to go back would be that their presence would be a constant humiliation a constant reminder of her sin, allowing them to marry. And later, speaking of bad counsel, in chapter 2 and verse 22, and 
uh, 23, Naomi is giving Ruth advice to heed Boaz's gracious invitation to work only in his field and to stay where the young woman who worked there uh, because Boaz had promised safety, and we'll get into that more the next time. Well, that's good counsel. But she didn't do that. She left the land of promise. She left Bethlehem, the house of bread, to go to Moab. So this is kind of like a parent that's telling their child what to do and says, have you ever done this as a parent? Don't do as I do. Do what I say. And the child kind of says, wait a minute, that that sounds a little bit like hypocrisy. Well, that's Ruth. She left the land of promise, her choice. And as we read this little book, uh, try to take notice of the number of times that Naomi appears to blame God for her troubles, how she is accusing God of being cruel. As I said in verse 13 of chapter 1, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And she demonstrates how embarrassed she is of her Moabite appendage in front of her national family and friends. Ruth is a constant reminder of her sin. And if you pick up in verse 18 of chapter 1, again, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, that being Ruth, she said no more. Now, I imagine, again, when I'm reading a passage like this, I try to meditate on it and imagine what it was like as they walked back to the nation of Israel. It was no short hike. And I guarantee you there was very little spoken uh, between Ruth and Naomi, or vice versa. Very little. She gave her the silent treatment. And it says in chapter 1 that upon their arrival, no one in the land of Israel, in Bethlehem in particular, even acknowledges that Ruth is there. They welcome back Naomi. But there's nothing said about Ruth. When the Lord opens his heart to bless Ruth and Naomi with food from Boaz, and hopefully you've you read through chapter 1, you got into chapter 2, and you saw how in God's amazing hesed, in God's amazing covenant faithfulness, she ends up in the field that's owned by Boaz. Any other situation, she could have walked into huge trouble. Imagine, if you will, what it would be like for a Moabite woman to show up with a bunch of laborers who didn't have a boss like Boaz. It wouldn't have been a a very safe situation. So the Lord, when he begins to bless uh, Naomi and Ruth, uh, Naomi appears to soften a bit, and in chapter 2 and verse 20, uh, she actually gives sort of a blessing in particular uh, to, to Boaz. Uh, the man's name whom I work today is Boaz, verse 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may th- <clears throat> and may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. And that was a Jewish Blessing. There was a common Jewish blessing, this notion of blessing the living and the dead. And so Naomi kind of comes back a little bit and uses this blessing terminology 
recognizing that it was God's amazing hesed, his amazing sovereignty that led Ruth to the right place at the right time. But chapter 3 comes along. And you recognize that Ruth is still in the business of giving wretched counsel uh, to her daughter-in-law, still demonstrating a mind that's not trusting in God, but full of schemes, doing what seemed to be right in her own eyes. Do you remember, the, the basis of my saying this is because her first motivation was to get rid of Ruth and Orpah and send them back to their false gods and to their families who worshipped false gods. But in chapter 3, verse 3, uh, she follows a pattern which is vaguely familiar in Moab. Did you read this chapter? Because we're not going to take the time to read it again, but essentially she... You remember Lot's daughters? You remember what they did with their dad? They made sure he was drunk. Then they slept with their dad so that they could bear children. Otherwise, they had no prospect of bearing children. Look at Ruth's advice. It's very, very familiar. Essentially, she says, get yourself cleaned up. Wait until he's merry and had lots to drink. And then lie at his feet and he will tell you what to do. Would you say that was wise counsel? It was horrible counsel. Wretched counsel. I can't imagine. Even if your mother-in-law doesn't think that much of you, I can't imagine her giving you that kind of counsel. But that's the counsel that she gave. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And I'm thrilled to tell you, and we'll see this more in two weeks, that Ruth obeys her mother-in-law, but modifies her approach to Boaz. Thanks be to God. Because Ruth wanted nothing to do with false gods. So Ruth modifies her mother-in-law's counsel, but does approach Boaz, essentially, as we'll see next time. She basically proposes to him in the field next to the grain. Basically proposes to him, which is a wonderful thing. And she was the initiator of that proposal. She didn't just wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. So, in summary for Naomi, what I want us to see here is that God will accomplish his purposes And no sin of man or your own can thwart his purposes because of what? Hesed, God's covenant faithfulness. And if you get nothing else out of this, remember that word hesed. Think back upon the way, even though you have had crooked paths in your life, God, in retrospect, straightens those paths as long as you acknowledge him. 
Also, I want us to see that in spite of all of the sinful, self-centered choices that she's made, God ultimately blesses Naomi. If you haven't gotten to the last chapter, I want you to turn to chapter 4 and zoom in on verse 14 of chapter 4. And this is how the women of Bethlehem recognize God's blessing as she is sitting there at the end of this book holding this little baby. This little baby who in the providence of God ends up in the lineage of who? Jesus. If you have time, and I know sometimes when we look at genealogies you kind of get a little you know tired you can't pronounce these people's names etc but look at Matthew 1 verse 1 you'll see three women mentioned you'll see Boaz's wife Boaz's mother Rahab you'll see that this little baby the son of Ruth ends up being the grandpa of David, ultimately in the line of Jesus. You see the beauty of this situation. Ruth, uh, Naomi's making all of these horrible decisions, giving bad counsel, disobeying God, claiming God's been bitter to me, God's held back blessing from me, blaming God for all of her problems. Ultimately, she ends the book holding this little baby, and she ends up being the nurse of this little baby who turns out to be David's grandpa, who turns out to be in the line of Jesus. There's only a few women mentioned in that genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Ruth is one of them. Amazing. God's hesed. And listen to what the women said about Naomi. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And here's, you remember the attitude of of Naomi when she was decided to go back to Bethlehem was that she didn't need these two appendages. And ultimately, even the, the land, even the people in Bethlehem recognized that Ruth was more to her than seven sons. That's an amazing turn of events, wouldn't you say? The women who didn't even recognize Ruth when she came into the town, into the village of Bethlehem, the house of bread. Our great God turns all of Naomi's bitterness into great joy at the end of this, at the end of this story. 
and through the valley of the shadow of death with a terrible sense of loss, she comes back to the land of promise empty, yet ends up being filled with God's marvelous hesed. And her daughter-in-law, who was an embarrassment to her, becomes worth more than seven sons. God took her crooked paths and made them straight because of his amazing mercy and his hesed. The child, as I said, becomes the grandpa of David. So let me give you a few takeaways. Our sovereign God will redeem all of our losses. He will redeem all of our losses. When we get older, one of the the things that attends older ages is we deal with constant loss. Constant loss. Well, let me just say God will redeem those losses. Remember, John 6, when the people were leaving Jesus and he challenged the disciples and said, uh, will you go? And Peter says, where would we go? We got no place better to go. You're the Messiah. Well, Peter, at one other time in the ministry of the incarnation of Jesus, I said, Lord, we left everything for you. And Jesus says, whatever you've left, this is Al's paraphrase, New Living Translation, whatever you've left, God's going to give you a hundredfold. Whatever losses you've endured, whatever family members have turned their back on you, if you've given up houses and barns or whatever to serve the Lord, he will restore all those things. He will take our crooked paths and make them straight because of his kind mercy, his hesed. God will supply all of our needs. And even though there are consequences in this life to bad decisions, unwise decisions, sometimes even sinful decisions, ultimately, ultimately, we will be restored. Meditate upon the things that you've heard here from Reed in the last couple of weeks about heaven. You see, that's where we're headed. All of the stories that we read in the Old Testament are pointing to something. And the experience of these people, while we can identify with them as they went, they're ultimately headed to the promised land. Bethlehem. The new heaven and the new earth. So I have a couple of questions. I'm going to leave you with questions. And for our small group, this is what we're going to talk about this afternoon. Is your life bitter? Have you become bitter? And you don't have to be old to be bitter. You don't have to be old to be bitter. Verses 19 through 22 of the first chapter of the Book of Ruth illustrates a woman who's become bitter. Have you ever known someone who's bitter? Who's ready to blame God for everything in their lives? 
So the question is, and I, I will address this question specifically to older people, but not exclusively to older people. It's so easy dealing with losses to become bitter about accepting your losses. Can your life be described like Naomi, where you went from pleasant to bitter? From Naomi to Mara. Something for you to seriously ask yourself. Have, secondly, have you gone to visit sin? Had no intention on in staying there. I'm just going to make a quick trip into Moab. But I'm not staying there. And you end up getting comfortable and staying there. And you wake up. And you say, how did I get here? God has forsaken me. That's what happened to Naomi. Thankfully, before she left this earth, God turned her around. Have you gone to visit sin, but ended up dwelling there? Now, Naomi, when she comes back into the land, makes a statement. She says, I left full, but I came back empty. I left full, but came back empty. Where are you this morning? Are you full, or are you running on empty? And if you're running on empty, whose fault is it? Seriously, ask yourself, where are you this morning? Are you in a judge's cycle like the nation of Israel? You know the cycle I talked about early on. They were blessed. They sinned. They're cursed. They repent. They're blessed again and restored. Where are you in the cycle? Where are you? And whose fault is it? There are consequences to every decision we make. This is the book of consequences. Fourthly, know that the Lord brings good out of our calamities. You have so many passages in the Old Covenant. Jeremiah 29, 11, if you're writing notes. Genesis 50, verse 20. Romans 8, 28, obviously. Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71. And James, chapter 1 and verse 2. The Lord will bring good out of our calamities as long as we acknowledge him in all of our ways. From Proverbs, chapter 3, 5 and 6. God will redeem us because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. We are his. And God will redeem us in spite of our sin and failures. God will not let us go. Another hymn that you didn't choose today, Scott, is O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. That is a wonderful hymn as well. And would have been appropriate for this passage. God will not let his children go. Now, does that, does that sound like antinomianism? Or is it just a blessing truth that we're in his hands? And no one can pluck us out of 
his hands. It is better to trust the Lord than our own inventions or schemes, even though we might be the wisest person in the whole earth. That was sarcasm, in case you didn't know. Be careful when you give advice. It's another takeaway from this. Be careful when you give advice and make sure that you're not, that you are pointing people to Jesus and his word. Be careful when you give counsel. Those of us that occasionally talk to people and help them through issues or problems in their lives, we recognize how important it is that we be careful what we say. Be careful when we give counsel or advice. And finally, if we are his people, take comfort from God's amazing hesed. God's amazing mercy. He will take our crazy, stupid, crooked paths and make them straight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful little book. I ask, Lord, that you would uh, help us to meditate upon the things that we need to learn from this. Deliver us from uh, our own wisdom, from our own uh, oftentimes unwise counsel. Help us, Lord, to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.